Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, and you're listening to the Commonweal Podcast. On today's show, I actually get to speak at some length with Diane Ravitch, the uh, education expert whose new book is called Slaying Goliath. And I'm also here with some key members of the Commonweal staff to talk about the new Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life. This is the Commonweal Podcast. Terrence Malick's latest movie is A Hidden Life. The film takes up the real-life story of Franz Jägerstader, a farmer from the mountain village of St. Radigan in Austria on the German border, who declared himself a conscientious objector during World War II, refused to take the soldier's oath of induction or a pledge of loyalty to the Fuhrer and the Fatherland, and was sentenced to death for the crime of undermining military morale. He was executed in 1943 and beatified by Pope Benedict in 2007. And I'm here today to talk with our senior editor, Matt Boudouin, and assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, about the movie. Both Matt and Griffin have seen it. And Matt, let me start with you and just sort of get your thoughts on Malik's latest. Well, as all of our three reviews note, it's a, it's a very long film and in some ways very typical of Terrence Malik's late work. I expected to like it because I've liked most of Terrence Malik films, if not all of them, and because I was familiar with the story or at least the basic outline of the story. But I liked it more than I expected to. And I liked it because I think it it has really two themes. It's very simple, despite its length. It's visually gorgeous, like all of Terrence Malick's work, but in terms of the narrative and in terms of the themes, it's it's quite simple. Uh, One of the themes, which is sort of hammered home again and again from beginning to end, is that this man makes this very difficult decision this heroic decision that ends up costing him everything, despite the fact that it doesn't seem to change anything. From the first moment in the film when he talks to somebody about what he plans to do, that he plans to refuse to take this loyalty oath, his village priest, who's very sympathetic, says he he shouldn't do it. He says, uh, your sacrifice will benefit no one. And he's just the first of several characters throughout the film who tells Jägerstater something along those lines. Later in the film, an interrogator tells him, do you think your defiance will change the course of things? No one will know what happens to you in here. And that's in one way obvious, but perhaps because of the repetition of this point by various people with various points of view and and various motivations, it really does become something that you can't not notice, that you can't not take very seriously, that this is sort of an argument against consequentialism. Because This is an argument against the idea that before you know what the right thing to do is, you have to plot out the probable effects. Because there's no way for Jägerstater to know what the probable effects of his decision are, except he just knows that he can't, in good conscience, swear a loyalty oath to somebody who's doing evil things. And that's all that matters to him. He doesn't have to have a sophisticated calculation of effect. So that's, that's one of the major themes in the film. And it's a simple theme, but it's a powerful one because of the way it's embodied in the film itself, because you see how much this ends up costing Jägerstater. And then the other thing that I love about the film is that it shows you not just how hard it is to make a heroic self-sacrificial decision in the first instance, which is again a kind of truism, which can be milked for, for melodrama, but in this film what you see is how much harder it is to keep that decision than it is to make it in the first place. And that has something to do with the film's length. It's three hours long, and the first 
hour of the film, approximately, you're seeing Jägerstädter steal himself to make this incredibly difficult decision. And then the second hour or second third of the film, approximately, you see him brace himself for the consequences of his decision while he's still living in his village. And he's surrounded by the things he loves, the things that he'll lose if he continues to refuse to cooperate. And then the final third of the film, you see him in prison and you see him tortured and you see him facing his own death. And all through that last third of the film, he knows that at any moment he could free himself very easily by making a small compromise that nobody would blame him for. And to continue to make the decision not to do that day after day after day as he waits for his execution, that becomes, well, it's hard to watch. Uh, and, he's, and he's sort of continuously encouraged to make this decision. He's, he's sort of tempted, essentially, to right, say, look, you right. can just sort of sign right. and, and you'll be set free. Yes, the authorities, his own lawyer, his family, everybody, you know, begs him to change his mind. And the argument is very plausible. I mean, you, you, you owe nothing to this evil regime, mm -hmm. so why not say one thing and think another? Why not, you know go through the motions of taking this oath with a, uh, with a reservation uh, that you don't mean anything you're saying. That way you can go home, take care of your family, and live a good life. Or, you know, why not just work as a, as a medic mm -hmm. so that you don't have to be on the front lines doing the evil things that the Nazis were doing. You can just be saving the lives of fellow Germans who are caught up in this terrible war machine. But he refuses to take the easy way out. He refuses to do anything but the very hardest thing, which ends up costing him his life. And Griffin, what, what you know, um, Matt's raised a number of points too. You'll probably want to take it, but what what was your sort of general assessment as you were or your thoughts as you were watching this film? Yeah, well, I like Matt. I expected to like it. I should say I didn't expect to like it as much as I did end up liking it. And uh, well, as he says, it's very hard to watch. And one of the films that most reminded me of was maybe not so much A Man for All Seasons, where you know Sir Thomas More makes a very he has to make a similar decision. But uh, Philip Graining's Integrate Silence uh, that came out a mm -hmm. number of years ago about his time uh, in a Carthusian monastery in France. You've got the hills, you've got a monastic rhythm of things. And I think that's an important element that Malik brings to this film is there's a whole spirituality of martyrdom. And one of the things I found most compelling about this was that Jägerstetter, he doesn't even really understand, even up until the last, why he's doing what he's doing. It's It's as much his interrogation of his own decision to stand firm in the face of all the adversity and all the temptations that Matt mentioned, he's growing closer to God, which is his conscience. And I thought Malik did a wonderful job uh, bringing his audience along with him. I thought one of the things that helped the film the most also was the presence of Jägerstetter's wife, Francisca, played by Valerie Pockner. I thought she was incredible. Uh, I thought she really... Uh, Malik foregrounded her in a way that women don't often appear in his films. She was very much a separate and independent character, somebody that suffered as much as Franz. She's the one who bears the brunt of the moral indignity mm -hmm. from the villagers in, in their hometown of St. Radigand. And she struggles to understand his decision. It's something that happens to her as well. It's not that she takes a passive role, but she wants to understand where God is in all of this. And I think Nick Scrementi, uh, who wrote one of the online reviews for us of the film, points out she was really instrumental in Jägerstetter's, not just his conversion to Christianity, his taking his faith more seriously, but she served as a kind of moral and spiritual ballast for him. And I thought that was certainly true in the film. And so it's, it's also very much a love story. It's a story of, uh, as Matt says, you know, Malik is making arguments, and of course Malik's a philosopher, so he's going to make anti-consequentialist arguments, mm -hmm. but he also depicts love 
And this love story shows two people, a couple, a married couple, struggling to understand the evil that comes into their lives. That's what mm -hmm. they say. They say, we, we thought the war would never touch us here in mm -hmm. our valley above the clouds. Mm -hmm. And yet the war came. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought it was a beautiful depiction of what the sacrament of marriage is really about, which is not ultimate. It's not final in any sort of way. The, the couple eventually has to part. In this case, it happens in a particularly gruesome way, which Malik never shows, the execution. Mm -hmm. But she frees, I think, uh, Francisca frees Franz at the end to make his decision. She says, I... I don't even know if I understand this, but you must make the decision. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, it, I thought it was really beautifully depicted. I, I'm glad you raised the idea to sort of the, the depiction of, of the sacrament of marriage. And I think particularly powerful in the last third of the film, much of it is taken by voiceovers of the letters exchanged between Franz and, and Francisca. And there's sort of this meditative trance-like quality, I think, that sort of settles over that last third, even as we're sort of, as Matt had pointed out, kind of witnessing or anticipating the worst of what's to happen. We, we see Franz in jail, we see him being tortured, we see him being beaten, yet there's this sort of layer of beauty that, that kind of sits over it, even at that time, which I just found really quite powerful. Right. And so during that last third, when we see him in prison, in actually in a couple prisons, and it's this, this claustrophobic feeling of living out the last part of your life in a tiny cell, totally at the mercy of, of your guards and of this, of this regime, and feeling as powerless as a man can feel. At the same time, we get shots of uh, Francesca back in their village, raising their daughters, doing the work that he had done, mm -hmm. trying to deal with the obloquy that she faces from her, her neighbors in the village who just don't want to be... They just want to stay out of it. They don't want anything to draw attention to their little idyllic world. And the decision he's made certainly does that. It draws attention to them and puts them in peril, or so they feel. Mm -hmm. Although at the very end of the film, it's a, it's a small element of the film, but it's, it's, I think it's worth mentioning that there are signs at the very end of the film when it's clear that Jägerstädter is about to die, and even on the day of his death, that the villagers are starting to recognize what a good man he was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're feeling some compunction about the way they treated him mm -hmm. towards the end. Yeah. So as both Matt and Griffin mentioned, we do have a number of pieces, uh, both online and our print issue, uh, pieces by Nick Scramenti, uh, Robert Rubsam on A Hidden Life. And it's also featured on the cover of our February issue. Uh, we have a review uh, from Rand Richards Cooper uh, of A Hidden Life, which I think many people are sort of saying kind of represents a return to form for Malik. And that's at least how I felt coming out of this film after a couple of uh, unusual, less successful efforts, I think. I would agree. A couple times around. So yeah. uh, look for those pieces. And I want to thank Matt. Thank you. And Griffin. Thank you. Uh, for talking about the film. Thanks, guys. Based in Rome, the John Paul II Center's mission is to build bridges between Christian, Jewish, and other religious traditions by providing the next generation of religious leaders with a comprehensive understanding of and dedication to interfaith issues. The Center is now taking applications for the Russell Berry Fellowship in Interreligious Studies. The Center is looking for priests, women religious, and members of the laity who are passionate about interfaith issues. The fellowship covers one year of financial support for the study at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, a Dominican institution in the heart of Rome. The fellowship has supported more than 100 interfaith leaders in the pursuit of postgraduate degrees in the field of interreligious dialogue. For more details, please visit iie.eu slash berry. That's B-E-R-R-I-E. -R -R -E.
so I'm here with the editor of Commonweal. Dominic Preziosi. And you recently spoke with Diane Ravitch about her new book, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. So tell us a bit about Diane Ravitch and what did you two talk about? So Diane Ravitch is one of the foremost authorities on education, the history of education in the United States. And she actually worked in the first Bush administration as an assistant secretary of education. Most people know her now as one of the great opponents to the so-called reform movement. Diane Ravitch for many years has sounded a very loud and very thoughtful critique against things like school voucher programs, against charter schools, against the privatization of public education, against the involvement of what she calls philanthropic capitalists, Mm. people like Bill Gates or Sam Walton, who by virtue of the wealth that they've accumulated, feel that they somehow will be able to fix the public education system, a system that Diane Ravitch insists is not actually broken. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was sort of a myth that took root around the early 80s and the early part of the uh, uh, Reagan administration, which was known for wanting to privatize a number of what we consider public goods, Mm. like education. Uh, So this myth sort of took root that you U.S. public schools were failing and could not keep up with schools worldwide. And Diane Ravitch has spent time saying this is just simply not true. Yet in spite of this, we had programs like George W. Bush administration's No Child Left Behind, and then certainly uh, the Obama administration's Race to the Top program, which both put the emphasis on this notion that through mass capital investment and technocratic oversight, the a public education system could be saved. And uh, Diane Ravitch has written a number of books saying, well, wait a second. We really need to look at this, and we really need to think about what we mean uh, when, we're, when we're talking about uh, public education. So her new book, Slaying Goliath, she has basically said, well, the reform movement, as represented by things like No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, has failed. Mm. Parents have stood up. Teachers have stood up. Parents of public school students have stood up. And those who care about public education as a public good have stood up and said, enough is enough. She also says, though, that Can we ever really slay Goliath? Uh, Do we have to stay alert and vigilant? Because there is a desire among politicians, particularly politicians in power now, to continue privatizing public goods. Mm. Let's take a listen to it. Okay, (laughs) thanks. Diane, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Dominic. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, your book is really built on talking about the idea of the resistance to the reform and privatization movement in the public education system. But before we talk about the resistance to that movement, maybe you could provide a kind of quick history of that so-called reform movement, its major influencers, the role of philanthropic capital, the people you identify critically as the disruptors. Dominic, this is a very I would say it's not a well-known story because there has been an immense amount of money spent over the past 20 years, as well as very constrictive federal legislation directing the schools what they're to do, something that really has never happened in our history. Public education has always been a, a local and a state responsibility, and the federal government was there in the background providing support, but not telling people how to teach, what to teach, when to test, how to test, etc. So there's a whole new federal role that's taken place in the last 20 years. And the reason for the federal intervention and really the federal intrusion has been this narrative, our public schools are failing. And we've been hearing this now since a report that came out in 1983 in the Reagan administration uh, saying that public education was mediocre and there was a crisis 
And it turned out that the report was wrong because its facts have been pulled apart many times by many scholars uh, saying that public education was not failing. Although I think the problem, especially if you look back from 1983 to the present, is that our society is really in crisis because of the dramatic increase in poverty and the widening inequality, income inequality and wealth inequality. And that rise in child poverty in particular, we now have 40 to 50% of our children living by official government statistics, living in in some state of poverty. This has a dramatic impact on the schools and particularly it has an impact on test scores. So there has been a movement that really got going in the mid-1980s, gathered steam, and the the big change was the passage of George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind plan, which said that we should test every child every year and give rewards to schools or recognition to schools where the scores went up and punishments to schools, even closing them where the scores went down. That program was then enhanced and made even worse by Barack Obama's Race to the Top program. And we've been living with the effects of this high-stakes testing and privatization as a remedy for low test performance. We've been living with that now for 20 years. So that's the background. And, And added to that background is the fact that some of the richest people in America, some of the leading billionaires like Bill Gates, Charles Koch, uh, was the Koch brothers until David Koch died. The DeVos family, uh, Secretary of Education DeVos, many other billionaires decided that since American education was broken, it was up to them to fix it. And although none of them had any public school experience, and I could go on with the list, I have a whole chapter devoted to listing the billionaires and the corporations that have decided that they knew how to fix American education. All of their ideas involved privatization and usually corporate takeovers of schools. And what my book concludes after 20 years of this experimentation is that it has been a disastrous failure. It has not achieved any of its promises. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of this acceptance of of what seems like conventional wisdom, that American public education is failing. And you mentioned that this sort of took root in in the early 80s. But I guess, could you speak more to that? Like, just how did that come about? How did the idea come about that public education was failing? Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at international test scores, We've had this complaint now since the 1960s. Our international test scores are not impressive. And the fact is that international test scores are just like national test scores. They're just like state scores. They reflect, above all, family income and family education. And so there will be outliers. There will be poor kids who do very well on tests. There will be rich kids who do very poorly. They are outliers. Every standardized test shows that the uh, most affluent kids are at the top and the poorest kids are at the bottom. We have a spread of inequality in our country that's not really commonplace in Europe, for example. And the first time there was an international test given in the 1960s, our kids came in last. They came in last in eighth grade. They came in last in 12th grade. And so I guess we're making progress because now we're somewhere in the middle. We're not at the very bottom. But we've never done well on international tests. Part of that, I think, is that American kids don't take these tests seriously because they know that they don't count. Other countries, apparently, the kids take them more seriously. But in any event, they don't predict anything because all of those countries that have higher test scores than us have actually been performed far worse than us on economic and 
cultural and every other measure. So our economy in no way reflects the, uh, the international test scores and the international test scores don't predict the economy. But there's just no connection there. And the, the thing with the uh, standardized test scores is uh, we have invested now over the past 20 years literally billions of dollars in testing every child from third grade to eighth grade, and we have nothing to show for it. That all of this emphasis on standardized testing has enriched the testing corporations, but it has not produced any change in the relative standing of the states, or it has not closed any achievement gaps between the rich and the poor, or between black and white kids, or Asian and other kids. Politicians have operated on the theory that the more you test kids and the harder the tests are, the, the more the kids will get smarter. And that turns out to be a ridiculous proposition. It's simply not true. I think people generally understand what the reformers said they were trying to do in terms of standardizing on core measures on so-called teacher accountability and things like parental choice and charters. But you raised the idea of privatization a moment ago. And I want to just sort of, if you could draw the link a little more tightly between how this push for reform led to ideas like the monetization and the privatization of public education. You you mentioned in your book, for instance, the reformers using terms like opportunities of scale and market penetration. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, one of the problems that's arisen in the last 20 years is the shift of control and power from educators to business people and politicians. And the politicians have welcomed the entry of entrepreneurs. And so there are many charter schools, for example, that are run by entrepreneurs. There are charter chains that are corporate chains. And there may be an educator somewhere along the line, but the owner of the corporate chain or the leaders of the corporate chains are themselves, in, in many instances, not in every entrance, but in many instances, not educators, they're businessmen. And so you have in the charter world, incredible deals being made for property where property changes hands. The, uh, one corporation buys the property, leases it to another a branch of the same corporation. A lot of self-dealing, conflict of interest. I mean, I've documented this all over the country. It's rampant in states like Florida, Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, this kind of self-dealing where even though they say they're not for profit, uh, the actual money that's being changing hands is in the real estate. And in some cases, there are charters where the uh, person in charge says, well, we're not for profit, but the CEO is making $600,000, $700,000. This is not simply not heard of. Uh, there's been a huge debate in the state of California about accountability because there were tiny little districts, uh, school districts, authorizing charters in Los Angeles and San Diego in San Francisco, and the, di the districts that were authorizing them were 300 miles away. So in effect, there was nobody overseeing the money or the academics. And there have been numerous charter scandals in California, where, for example, just this past spring, uh, the spring of 2019, the biggest charter scandal in history occurred, where uh, two entrepreneurs who had created a charter chain or had multiple charter chains were indicted for the theft of $50 million. $50 million. And they were paying people in small districts to sign up kids or to put their names down as students in athletic programs for which they were getting reimbursed by the state, but there were no athletic programs. No one was checking. So the, the whole problem, or not the whole problem, one of the problems in the charter sector 
is the lack of oversight. And the, the advocates will say, we can only succeed if we have no regulation. And the best charter laws are the laws where there is no regulation, no oversight, and no accountability. That's what gives us the freedom to innovate. Well, in fact, that's what gives them the grifters the freedom to steal. And so you can't have it both ways. If you want government money, you have to have oversight. You have to have regulation. You have to be sure that the money is being spent the way it's supposed to be spent and not spent on administrative overhead or going into the bank account of the person running the place. You know, I think one of the sort of most compelling sections of your book is when you you take up the language that the reformers use, and you just use the phrase there too, freedom to innovate. But you you know, you, you talk about disruption, you talk about entrepreneurialism, and you you make a nice contrast by saying, like, look, you can't use these terms when it comes to public education, right? I mean, you can't sort of have measurements of things like engaging with a, a work of literature, for instance. And can you sort of talk about just how the language of the reform movement seemed to seduce so many people. Well, the, the language of this movement, and I, I'm always hesitant to call them reformers, and I draw the distinction between real reformers and these folks. They call themselves reformers because this is like a poll-tested word. We all know that reform means good. Uh, in American history, the reformers were always the good guys. They were the ones who wanted to make things better. And so there's a long history in education that reformers wanted teachers to be paid more. They wanted desegregation. They wanted to get rid of the kind of backward ideas about uh, dinosaurs riding around with people on their backs. They wanted to have modern education where professionals were well compensated. These reformers are instead pushing for punitive testing for young teachers who will stay for a year or two and go and then go away. They're really attacking the teaching profession as such. They despise unions. I'm a, I've never been a member of a union in my life, but I support unions because I believe that unions are a path to the middle class and they've helped to keep hold our country together and hold the middle class together and they're disappearing. And I think it's a shame. But the folks who call themselves reformers I really want to privatize public education. They're very pro-charter. They're even pro-voucher. I think that this is why I use the term disruption. They have welcomed the introduction of entrepreneurship in education. We see just a flourishing of for-profit activity. There's an annual, more than one annual conference on how to make a profit from education. And Rupert Murdoch, who owns many newspapers, media outlets, has said that the Public education is a multi, like a multi-billion dollar, five hundred billion dollar industry just waiting to be disrupted. And when I listen to business people, and I, I remember one time I was I was being interviewed on the Charlie Rose Show, and the person who preceded me in the interview uh, was the CEO of a major tech company. And I, as I listened to him, he said, "We disrupt our company every two years. Every two years we disrupt." And I thought. That's fine. You know, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. If it makes you better, do it. But please don't leave the children alone. Children and families don't want disruption. Schools don't need disruption. Schools need to have steadiness of purpose. They need to have very competent and experienced educators, and they need to have stability for the children. So the, the, the very idea of disruption, which the reformers celebrate, is an, really anathema to the lives of children and families. You also talk, too, in the book about the the approach when you sort of implement high-stakes testing and all sort of these kind of, I guess, the common core, all kinds of metrics, is uh, it works against what the public 
education system is supposed to do in American society is something that works for the common good uh, in terms of making young people ready to participate, for instance, in American civil life. Uh, what about that? I mean, have, has the past 20 years, have we just lost several generations of uh, future intelligent participants in American civic life because of this? Well, I, right now I have to say that with all of the attacks on education and the attacks on educators, it's going to take a lot of work to put education back together again. There are teacher shortages all over the country. Uh, I know that in, in uh, schools of education where m- most teachers are prepared, there have been dramatic declines in enrollment. People don't want to be teachers because teaching right now is considered a very low profession, both in terms of the economic rewards, but also in terms of the respect. And I think that where this has changed mightily over the past 20 years is that people went into teaching not to make money, but because they believed that they were doing an important social service. They were doing it out of a sense of idealism. They either loved their subject or they wanted to teach children or they thought they could make a difference. All of these were very idealistic motives. Uh, But if you wanted to make money and you went into teaching, there would be something wrong with you. This, the, the only thing you would get as an economic reward is knowing that at the end of the, your professional career, you would have a secure pension. And there have been, I didn't even get into this in the book, there have been intense attacks on teachers' pensions in states across the country, like Kentucky, where the Republican governor was just defeated because of his attacks on teachers' pension rights. Uh, there's a billionaire named John Arnold who made his fortune at Enron, and he has devoted a lot of effort to trying to eliminate public sector pensions, which I find very odd because public sector pensions are usually just a guarantee that you won't live in poverty. These are not munificent pensions. They're more like forty dollars or $50,000 a year. And this is your reward for having given 30 or 40 years to teaching under difficult circumstances. So I find it hard to believe why someone who's a billionaire would want to take this away from people who've worked for it, uh, particularly because there are many states, and I, I don't know the exact number, maybe 15 or 18 states, where teachers are not eligible for Social Security because they're guaranteed pensions. So if you take away their pensions and they don't have Social Security, it doesn't, uh, it's just cruel. We've talked about the failings of so-called reform. And I guess I want to know now, since your book's title is Slaying Goliath, maybe you could tell us what ended up tipping the balance or lighting the match for the resistance. Who are some of the forces and figures? I mean, is it the striking teachers we've seen over the past couple of years? It's uh, There's informed educators, I think, who are becoming more sort of vocal. There's a whole network of bloggers, I think, that you, you discuss in your book. And maybe you could sort of talk about how the resistance movement came together. Well, for me, the, the, the moment that was a turning point was almost two years ago in February of 2018, when the West Virginia teachers walked out en masse, every single teacher in the state, in a, in a right-to-work state where teachers are not allowed to strike, where it's illegal to strike, every single teacher walked out of their classroom and showed up at the state capitol to demand not only higher pay, but better working conditions, better learning conditions. They also took a strong stand against charter schools. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the country. The governor there is a a billionaire. And this was very inspiring, not only to me, but to people, teachers all over the country. And they lit a flame that went from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Arizona to state after state, California, Los Angeles. I don't think this is over. This will continue. 
because teachers have now seen this picture of the power that they have when they unite, when they stand together for their demands. What was most impressive about West Virginia was that it was every single teacher in the state. They call them, they have 55 school districts in the state and their their slogan was, we're 55 strong. They would have all been sent to jail, which of course is an impossibility, but every superintendent in the state closed every school. And so none of them were technically breaking the law. I'm going to be going to Charleston, West Virginia for the second anniversary. I think it's February 22nd of this year uh, and meeting with the teachers there. And I'm very excited about it because I think that what they did was was brave and it was bold and it showed that standing together, they could really make a difference. They did get a significant pay hike. The legislature behind their back passed charter legislation, but apparently is so weak it may never actually create a real charter. I want to talk too about this uh, this sort of army of bloggers that you 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 list in your book and and maybe speak to the the effect and the importance of that kind of effort. I mean, you have a blog now, and uh, well, I guess how long have you had your blog? I started my blog in 2012, and it was after I had written a book about my very serious change of mind. I, I had worked on the conservative side for many years. I was an advocate of all the things I now criticize. I worked in the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, and I supported high-stakes testing. I thought that it would lead to better outcomes. I supported charter schools, and I knew all the people in, in the beginning who were on that side. Uh, I was, wasn't too sure about voucher. I, I have to say I've always been a very strong supporter of Catholic schools, but I'm not in favor of vouchers. So I have interesting conversations with my many Catholic friends about my belief that Catholic schools should be supported by private philanthropy. And since Bill Gates' wife, Melinda, is a graduate of Catholic schools, I think they should set aside about $2 billion as a permanent endowment fund to keep Catholic education alive and not dependent on public funds. But in 2010, I published a book called The Death and Life of the Great American School System, which was a kind of mea culpa. I said, I've been an advocate of these ideas, and I've decided based on the evidence that I was wrong. Uh, High-stakes testing is having terrible side effects. It's ruining education. From my experience inside very, very elite think tanks on the conservative side, I realized that the charter schools were not working because I'd been part of discussions where people who were spent their, their time writing about the glories of charter schools admitted in private that they weren't working. They were closing almost as fast as they were opening. And uh, there was a lot of theft. Uh, we, at the time, we were well aware of this. And so I came out against No Child Left Behind. I came out against charters. I came out against vouchers. I came out against high-stakes testing. And uh, in 2012, because I wanted to encourage other people I started a blog and discovered other bloggers. And I've used my blog mainly as a platform for everybody else. I will find a wonderful piece written by a blogger in Pennsylvania. What it's allowed me to do is to become uh, nationally engaged. I'm not just a New York blogger. I started as a New York blogger because I live here. But I became knowledgeable about events in California and with the state of Washington and New Mexico. And, you know, I also have traveled a lot over these past 10 years. So I'm able to, uh, at the drop of a hat, tell you about what's going on in Florida or Alabama or Louisiana or Texas and so forth. And a lot of this is because of my blog and because of the bloggers I've met. And the bloggers have given tremendous heart to the resistance. And what I did in, in this book, uh, Slaying Goliath, was to 
single out people who either single-handedly or with a small number of allies made a huge difference. And just to give you one example, in Chicago, Rahm Emanuel closed a lot of public schools. And on one day, he closed 50 public schools, which was frankly unheard of. That had never happened. He's a huge supporter of charters. And uh, he was had announced that he was going to close the last open enrollment high school in Bronzeville, which is the heart of the black community. And a civil rights leader in Chicago named G2 Brown said uh, he couldn't do this. And he got together his followers and they pursued Rom everywhere and said, don't close Diet. And Rom simply ignored them. And then they set up a dozen lawn chairs right in front of Diet High School and said, we're on a hunger strike and we're not going to eat until you agree to keep Diet High School open. On the 34th day of the hunger strike, Rom conceded. He uh, gave up and he announced that he would invest 15 or $16 million into renovating the building. And it reopened a year later as the Walter Diet High School for the Arts. And there was a great ribbon cutting. And that was 12 people sitting in lawn chairs. And they reversed what would have been a catastrophic decision. There are other people, and I could go on, which I don't have time to do, about people who have one person, two people have uh, really challenged the reformers and, and by the sheer power of resistance have, have stopped them in their tracks. I guess the one favorite I have to mention is Bill Gates and the Carnegie Corporation put together $100 million to create something called Enbloom that was going to collect the personally identifiable data of children all over the country, store it in a cloud managed by Amazon, and the technology would be Rupert Murdoch's wireless generation. You know, with with a crowd like that, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, Well, one parent leader in New York City, Lainey Hampson, got together with the parent leader from Colorado, Rachel Stickland, and the two of them contacted parents in every district where Enbloom was going to gather data, and they created so much resistance uh, testifying in legislative hearings and getting parents on the case that Enbloom literally collapsed, $100 million, and they simply dropped it. I'm wondering if you might be able to speak to a couple other issues that are in the news now. De facto segregation, for instance, is a problem as well-off communities and districts that are mostly white tend to dominate and perpetuate their control of what they identify as good schools. There are uh, wealthy PTAs that are able to sort of create almost de facto private schools within the public system. Can you talk about challenges like this and and maybe efforts like, uh, well, District 15 uh, here in Brooklyn, New York, and elsewhere to intentionally desegregate and keep public education kind of public and equal? You know, I think it's going to be difficult. And it's difficult because there is not just residual racism, it comes out of outright racism, where people don't who have privilege don't want to give it up. And it's a very tough problem, but it is not insoluble. I think there are ways of rezoning districts. And I think it gets to be harder and harder where there's residential segregation and where the district, for example, like New York City is, I think about 80 or 85 percent non-white cities like Detroit have even higher percentages that are non-white. But again, there are creative ways of zoning and it may involve state solutions. Uh, One of my uh, fantasies was that when Obama and Duncan came up with race to the top, instead of offering rewards to states that came up with plans for higher to, well, let's say they came up with plans for states and they said, if you want to be eligible, you have to be prepared to evaluate their teachers by the test scores of their students. That was a disastrous idea. 
but most states agreed to do that because they wanted to share the federal money. You had to agree to uh, increase your number of charter schools, uh, which led to no improvement. And they had a number of other uh, recommendations of this kind. You had to adopt the Common Core, which over 10 years has shown no improvements, on and on. And I think to myself, what if they had taken that $5 billion? Or what if the next Secretary of Education were to say, I have $5 billion, and I'm going to have a national contest for states? And the contest will be that the money goes to the states that come up with the best plans for desegregation that are actually that are actionable, where they can actually do this, where they can say, we have a plan where we will bring about much more integration than we have today. It might involve rezoning and might involve different ways of approaching housing, but it will be one that, that, that we can actually do. And I think that had they done that in 2009, instead of having a competition for test scores, which failed, America would look very different today. But it's not too late. We could do it. We could do it now if there were the will to do it. Uh, under the current administration, there's no will to advance integration, but there's also uh, no will to to do anything that will help students with student debt or, or adults with student debt or to to do anything about civil rights in general. So I want to wrap up by kind of getting back to the the title of your book, Slaying Goliath. And I will ask: Is Goliath really dead? Oh well, he certainly Goliath is not dead for sure. The point that I want to make is that everything that Goliath has said he will do has failed. There is not a single strategy or methodology that the reformers have promoted that has any record of success. So when you come in and say, we're going to reinvent public education and we have the answers, and then it turns out that all of your answers are wrong, it means that you are basically not even a Goliath. You're just a big, empty-headed monster uh, that's, that's very dangerous. And Goliath can be defeated, but the thing that's propping Goliath up is the vast amounts of money behind it. And there's one other point I want to make, Dominic, because I think it's important, and it is that the attack on public education is not isolated. This is also part of an attack on everything that's public. And so there's an organization that I write about in the book called ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council. This is a group that's funded by the wealthiest people in the country, by the most right-wing people in the country, and they have 2,000 members, uh, more or less, who are legislators from most of the states in the union, and these legislators get together once a year and bring back model legislation on how to get rid of environmental regulation, how to deregulate every aspect of business, how to get rid of gun control, uh, how to break unions. I mean, this is this is the, uh, since 1973, this group of very wealthy right-wingers has been out to destroy the public sector. And the destruction of public education is simply one of the points on their bullet list. So with that said, what should the resistance keep doing? What must it be watchful about? How, I guess, should it go about building on its success? Well, I think the important thing is to be uh, knowledgeable and aware. And that's what I've tried over um, I had the past 10 years of my life to make people aware, first of all, that this is happening, uh, that people like Betsy DeVos, Charles Koch, Eli Broad, Bill Gates, whether they, they mean well or not, what they're doing is very damaging to the public sector in general. And that it is possible that the message of this book is not only that the, these folks are aiming to destroy the public sector, but that they can be beaten. 
Diane Ravitch's new book is Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. Congratulations on the book, Diane, and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you, Dominic. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>